Hello, and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And as usual, I'm your host, Sam Mickey. And this week, in lieu of having a uh, guest on, I wanted to talk about the work of a very influential figure in the world of religion and ecology, and that's Thomas Berry. And, uh, you know, Barry's born in 1914 and passed away in 2009. Uh, so I don't have an opportunity to invite him onto the podcast. I'm sure he would be uh, very excited to do so. Uh, so I figured, uh, why not give a little bit of an overview of his life and thought uh, to get a sense of why he's such an important figure for the field of religion and ecology and for the forum on religion and ecology in particular, uh, since uh, the founders, Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm, were students of Barry. So, you know, if you talk to people who do environmental work and you mention Barry, uh, you never know which one people are talking about. There's kind of a couple important Barrys. Uh, there's Wendell Barry, who I think is around uh, 87 years old and really a big advocate for agrarian lifestyles. And uh, then there's Thomas Barry, who is more oriented toward uh, religious studies, uh, cultural history, and integrating that with uh, a vision of ecology and our place in uh, evolution. So, uh, you know, both Barry's have been mentioned on the podcast a handful of times. And uh, so I figured this would be a good opportunity to give a sense of what Thomas's work is about. So where to start? Um, you know, he's very widely influential uh, for the breadth of his intellectual pursuits, um, also because of his uh, deeply spiritual sensitivity. Uh, but even though he's been so influential, uh, there wasn't a comprehensive account of his life uh, written until very recently, uh, in 2019, with the publication of Thomas Berry, a biography, uh, written by three people, Mary Evelyn Tucker, John Grimm, and then Andrew uh, Angel helped with some of the research into the young Berry's life. So who is Barry? right? Born in 1914. So he's growing up, you know, in like the 1920s, that's kind of your growing up phase, and in Greensboro, North Carolina which was, you know, a predominantly Protestant place to grow up, and he was a Catholic. So that, you know, that already brings a sort of religious awareness uh, into your life when you have to deal with uh, cultural difference, religious difference, even though Catholics and Protestants are both Christian, uh, still, you know, a tremendous an uh, amount of animosity can arise and just misunderstanding and uh, failure to empathize and sympathize. So, uh, you know, religion was already, you know, present in his life. It wasn't just in the background. It was, it was obvious something was there. Uh, and then a love of nature showed up really early for him too. At the age of 11, uh, he had an experience of a meadow and he writes about it in his book, The Great Work, Meadow Across the Creek. And just like a lot of young people, really, we have some kind of a tendency toward a mystical or ecstatic or enthusiastic connection with nature at a young age. And uh, where you just have a sense of awe, wonder, reverence um, at life. Even something as simple as a blade of grass or a tree, uh, right, isn't so simple, really. And when you really appreciate it for what it is and just see it without any deep explanation necessary, uh, you can get a sense that there's an intimate connection between humans and nature, right? That we're not just apart from nature, we're also a part of nature in a very deep, intimate way. So, you know, growing up, uh, his, his faith commitments and his love of nature kind of continued developing. Uh, eventually, he joins uh, the Passionist Order of Catholic Priests. So, very committed Catholic, becoming a priest. 
and uh, does graduate studies in cultural history, uh, takes some really important formative trips to China, uh, to Germany. So he was building deep connections with the past, with the cultural heritages of, of humankind, uh, and the living scholars of the present, paying attention to new developments in religious studies, science, environmentalism, uh, and facilitating the development of emerging scholars like his students, Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm. Uh, so, and of course, they went on to found and direct the Forum on Religion and Ecology, which is putting on this podcast. So it's all come in full circle. Uh, one important thing that I like to point out, one of the things that really influences me about Barry is he was able to expand beyond his Catholic framework and even his Christian framework to really have a deep uh, appreciation and understanding of, of the variety of religious traditions around the world, um, including, you know, non-Abrahamic traditions, right? Uh, we sometimes call South Asian uh, and East Asian religions. So, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, also a deep appreciation for indigenous lifeways and contemporary forms of spirituality. So deeply capacious in his, uh, in his thinking and his understanding and his writing. Uh, so I think that's a, a really important role model for all of us living in a globalized society. Uh, that kind of deep understanding of all of the traditions uh, and communities inhabiting this planet, I think is very crucial. So still teaching, still committed to education, uh, brings him to New York, taught at Fordham University. Uh, he established uh, the Riverdale Center of, for Religious Research, which is widely influential. A lot of people who have uh, personal connections with Barry often have some uh, fond memories of Riverdale. And then what else? You know, just trying to bring it all into an evolutionary or cosmological framework. Right. This is a really big part of, of why he's not just a religious studies scholar, but influential for religion and ecology. So he's trying to bring those two worlds together, the ecological, the evolutionary, the cosmological, and really uh, see how our wisdom traditions are expressions of that deeper story, right? The evolution of the universe itself. So at some point, you know, the, he realizes the term theologian can't possibly capture the kind of work he's doing. So he coins the term geologian right? An earth scholar, but a spiritually sensitive, you know, religiously aware earth scholar. So it's a very integrative vision of humans, uh, a variety of cultural forms uh, with the earth, with our evolutionary context. So breaking new ground, um, Barry's writings showed up in a variety of places, uh, and they were collected in some very well-known books like The Dream of the Earth uh, back in 1988, uh, the Great Work, which uh, 1999, so turn of the century, and uh, then The Sacred Universe, which came out in 2009, a really good collection of his essays uh, spanning his, his career uh, and others, other texts as well. Not trying to give an exhaustive account. Uh, we can, you know, <laughs> do that later. This will, this is just giving an overview of, of what he's about. Uh, so, you know, he developed a profound partnership also with the cosmologist and evolutionary philosopher, Brian Thomas Swim, one of my teachers. And uh, they wrote a book together, very influential book for a lot of folks uh, that presents this kind of integrative narrative of humanity, earth, and the cosmos, right? One story, one integrated narrative. So the book is called The Universe Story. Uh, and that came out, I guess, about 
30 years ago, 1992 was its uh, original publication. And uh, so for the rest of his life, Barry continued sharing that vision, that integrated vision with others, influencing a diverse array of scholars, activists, poets, you know, all kinds of uh, all kinds of people, inspiring other people to take up what he called the great work of our time. Right. I mentioned that's one of the uh, books that he has, the great work. Um, and I don't know, it might be one of my favorite of the of his publications, maybe the favorite. I don't know. Hard to pick favorites. Uh, but in any case, I wanted to share a little bit about that. So, having talked about his life a little to get a sense of uh, his vision, I think it's helpful to talk about the great work. And what is the great work? It's deceptively simple. Um, it's about stopping the current period of destruction on the planet, which sounds, you know, obvious. Like, of course, we should stop being destructive. Uh, destructive toward the earth, ecologically destructive, but also socially and culturally destructive, right? Um, there's a lot of violence uh, exploitation, destruction, and uh, we can turn away from that, turn away from our destructive presence on the planet toward mutually beneficial relations with our earth community. So that's the basics, right? A vision for how to turn away from our destructive habits currently and turn toward a uh, mutually beneficial, mutually enhancing relationship between humans with one another and with their uh, planetary home. Easy, right? And so how do we do that? Uh, one of the nice uh, ways that he puts it is that we basically have to reinvent the human. We have to reinvent what it means to be human, not just renew the human, but reinvent. Things have changed, right? We've learned things along the way in our evolutionary development, and we've globalized, right? We have turned into a, a global species. Of course, People talk about the Anthropocene to indicate this, right? Humans are earth-shaping creatures and not in any equal way, of course, uh, falling along uh, inequities of race, class, gender, age, ability, etc. So how do we deal with that? How do we, how do we become responsible as the planetary species we are? How do we invent a human that's capacious enough and kind enough uh, to live not just sustainably, but in a enhancing, beneficial way to uh, the rest of the planet. So reinvent the human. Part of that is that we have to do it at the species level. That's a key point for him, the species level. So this isn't just like a new cultural trend. It's us really trying to tap into what it means to be a species on Earth, living with other species. So we have to understand uh, ourselves as a species Otherwise, uh, we're not going to feel that connection to our evolutionary context. So at the species level, with critical reflection, we need science, we need critical thought. Uh, this can't uh, just be about connecting to nature based on feelings. Feelings very important, but so is critical reflection. So of course, you know, scholars are very aware of this. Uh, we need critical thinking. We need to be reading stuff. We need to be learning stuff. But if, if it's not critical, then we're going to uh, repeat certain power dynamics that are ultimately harmful for us. So reinvent the human at the species level with critical reflection within the community of life systems, right? So seeing ourselves as evolutionary and ecologically embedded beings uh, in a time developmental context as well. We have to know that there's something called history. 
and more generally something called evolution and uh, situate ourselves in that kind of broader context. So you can probably get a sense of, of the basic trajectory of this, right? Is that uh, reinventing the human really just means uh, facilitating the emergence of like an ecological sense of what it means to be human, both spatially, right, in relationship to the community of life around us, but also temporally, understanding the evolutionary trajectory that brought us to where we are. So then there's the question, how are we going to do this reinvention? How are we going to use critical reflection to think of ourselves as a species, ecologically and evolutionarily embedded? How do you do that? Uh, not just presenting people with facts, that's for sure. There's not just going to be a graph that explains what's going on and people say, oh, well, I'll change my life accordingly. Uh, it turns out that facts alone aren't a really big motivator for behavior change or cultural transformation. Well, what's needed is, is narrative, right? There has to be a kind of narrative and experiential dimension to it that connects to people's hearts and hands and not just their heads. So the way he puts this is that we can carry out this reinvention by means of story and shared dream experience, right? So we need a story, not just facts. We need a narrative that helps us find ourselves in place and in time. And facts are important parts of that. But if you don't have a narrative that helps people find themselves in that world, the world that those facts describe, then uh, that transformation won't really reach the level of your ethical formation or it's not going to change your culture. So we need narrative and that narrative needs dream experience, shared dream experience, a shared vision, right? A shared vision that's not, again, just cognitive or intellectual, uh, a shared vision that's uh, experiential. And that's a dream. I mean, that's a dream in the sense of like Martin Luther King, I have a dream. It's also a dream in the sense of like a shamanic sort of trance, right? Uh, dreams are ecstatic experiences, dream experiences, right? So we need to recover uh, not just stories, but experiences that bring out the awe and wonder of our place uh, here on Earth in an evolving universe. So easy, right? Reinvent the human, new narratives, new dream experiences. Of course, the universe story is an example of uh, Barry articulating uh, that narrative with uh, Brian Thomas Swim. And, uh, and then Swim has gone on to develop the Journey of the Universe project and uh, his book with Mary Evelyn Tucker, The Journey of the Universe. And so that's its own whole other trajectory that's evolved out of this alongside the development of the Forum on Religion and Ecology. So to conclude, I uh, want to share some words uh, from Barry himself from uh, a chapter called The Dynamics of the Future in The Great Work. These are the uh, concluding paragraphs, which I think are very inspiring and give a sense of Barry's uh, overall vision. So... We must feel that we are supported by the same power that brought the earth into being, that power that spun the galaxies into space, that lit the sun and brought the moon into its orbit. That is the power by which living forms grew up out of the earth and came to a special mode of reflexive consciousness in the human. This is the force that brought us through more than a million years of wandering as hunters and gatherers. This is that same vitality that led to the establishment of our cities and inspired the thinkers, artists, and poets of the ages. Those same forces are still present. Indeed, we might feel their impact at this time and understand that we are not isolated in the chill of space 
with the burden of the future upon us and without the aid of any other power. We are a pervasive presence. By definition, we are that reality in whom the entire earth comes to a special mode of reflexive consciousness. We are ourselves a mystical quality of the earth, a unifying principle, an integration of the various polarities of the material and the spiritual, the physical and the psychic, the natural and the artistic, the intuitive and the scientific. We are the unity in which all these inhere and achieve a special mode of functioning. In this way, the human acts as a pervading logos. If the human is microcosmos, the cosmos is macroanthropos. We are each the cosmic person, the Mahapurusha, the great person of Hindu India, expressed in the universe itself. This being so, there's need to be sensitive to the earth, for the destiny of the earth identifies with our own destiny. Exploitation of the earth is exploitation of the human. Elimination of the aesthetic splendors of the earth is diminishment of existence. We do not serve the human by blasting the mountains apart for mineral resources. For in losing the wonder and awesome qualities of the mountains, we destroy an urgent dimension of our own reality. Ancient rituals through which we communicated with the earth and fostered its productivity may no longer seem fully effective, yet they do express a profound respect for the mystery of the earth. It would be philosophically unrealistic, historically inaccurate, and scientifically unwarranted to say that the human and the earth no longer have an intimate and reciprocal emotional relationship. We are not lacking in the dynamic forces needed to create the future. We live immersed in a sea of energy beyond all comprehension. But this energy, in an ultimate sense, is ours, not by domination, but by invocation. So, I hope you enjoyed this little tour through Thomas Berry's life and thought. I'll be back next week with some more conversations for you. In the meantime, take care and be well.